The sermon text this morning is found in the book of John, chapter 18, verses 33 through 38. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? So we find ourselves <clears throat> the day after Christmas. And there might be some of us in this room, I fear of this, but there might be some of us in this room that the moment Christmas, the sun starts setting on Christmas Day, we uh, start taking down the tree, either putting it back in a box or go throw it out in the woods. And we stop singing, tis the season, and we just kind of forget celebrating Christmas. If you are that individual in this room, I, I do feel for you. I'm, I'm concerned for you in many ways. Uh, you have some Grinch-like characteristics of, about you. But we're not going to be that way this morning uh, because we are so close on the hills of Christmas and we have been studying and preparing this Advent season of the coming of Christ. We've been preparing for him and we've been talking about why did Jesus come? Uh, we talked about how he came to destroy the works of the devil how he came to set the captives free, how he came to put death to death, and how he came to forgive sinners. And today we're going to look at one more reason for why he came. He came to bear witness to the truth. And we're going to see that he bore witness to the truth about his kingdom and his kingship. Now what we're going to do is we'll walk through the text, this story, this conversation with Pilate and Jesus, and then we'll kind of park on the purpose of what it means when he says, uh, I bear witness to the truth. So we're hopping in right here in the Gospel of John towards the end of it where Jesus has already been betrayed by Judas. He's been arrested. He's been brought before the religious leaders and the chief, uh, the high priests and the, the leadership there. And they've uh, been questioning him and they're trying to find one charge to bring against Jesus. And the one charge they're trying to find is him committing blasphemy. They bring about false witnesses. They want him to basically be condemned to death because they fear him. They're jealous of him, and so they are blinded by the one who created them. He's right there before them, and they can't see it, and they're just determined to have him put to death. And so finally, we see from the other gospel accounts that Jesus does answer them, and he says, one day you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory, referencing Daniel 7 and inferring that, yes, I am the Son of Man. Yes, I am the King of kings and God. And so at that point, they rip their clothes and they send him to Pilate. Now, they send him to Pilate because they did not have the authority to actually execute him. And their religiosity comes so far to where when they send him to Pilate, they don't actually enter into the premises with Jesus and Pilate in this conversation because that would defile them before the Passover. So they are very uh, concerned about defiling their own laws and rules as they hand over the Messiah to Pilate. And so here we are in this conversation with Pilate and Jesus. And so it starts in 
John chapter 18, verse 33, it says, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, Pilate, we should know, was uh, given a difficult task. He's the leader over all of Judea. He had a special appointment by Caesar Tiberius to oversee this contentious area. And Pilate knew it was a challenging area uh, to oversee because there was much unrest. And he actually ended up serving there for about 10 or 12 years. But Pilate did not do anything to help the tensions between the Jewish leadership and the Roman government who was occupying there. Uh, Pilate had a couple instances where he put up images of the Caesar. He had uh, instances where he did some sacrilegious events that the first uh, century historian Josephus tells us about that really frustrated and infuriated the Jews to where they had some protest and uh, conflicts. And eventually Pilate backed down and removed some of those under the request of Tiberius. And so there was already, if you would imagine, the air is tense with a lot of uh, concern over will there be a riot or insurrection. And Pilate didn't actually reside in Jerusalem. He's there at this time for the religious holiday to help oversee as the crowd of Jews are coming in to celebrate the Passover that no riot or insurrection would happen. So that's his focus. That's what he's uh, trying to make sure would not happen. And we know that the Jewish leadership brings Jesus to Pilate because they cannot execute him. And he's claimed to be God, but they change the accusation and they bring him to Pilate and they're accusing him of being a king. So that's why Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, you can imagine it'd be kind of a funny scene if you were one of the Roman guards in there. Here you are, one of the most powerful nations in the world, the most powerful nation in the world, and you're in the headquarters of the governor, and he is has this man before him who was arrested the night before, been beaten, he's roughed up, he's not had any sleep, and he stands there as a prisoner, and Pilate's asking him almost humorously, are you the king of the Jews? Look at what Jesus says in verse 34. Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Notice the infinite wisdom of Christ in the way he responds to Pilate. Because Jesus, we know, is the king of kings. He's the king of the Jews, and he's the king of the nations. He is the Son of God. That's what the Gospel of John is showing over and over again with his miracles and teachings. And so when Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus has a frank question to answer. He can't say no. He is truly the king. But if he says yes, then Pilate now has a charge and a reason to have him executed because he's an insurrectionist. He's going against Caesar. And Jesus is following God's plan perfectly. He knew that he would be the one who'd be lifted up, that he'd be handed over to Pilate, but Jesus is not going to give a reason to Pilate for him to be executed. So when Jesus says, do you say this of your own accord, notice how our Lord switches the conversation from this grand, what does Rome think of me as an insurrectionist, but Pilate, do you say this? Our Lord switches from the one being interrogated to the one who is now interrogating Pilate. He asked Pilate personally, what do you think, Pilate? For see, Pilate, although he's representing Rome in this moment, he also is having a personal encounter with the Lord who made him. And he has to answer for himself, do you believe that he is a king or not? And you notice Pilate quickly backs away from the question in 35. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Pilate quickly backs away from this question and begins to show his Roman superiority. Am I a Jew? Am I like you conquered people? No. 
It's your own people who've handed you over with your religious squabble and fights over something. Just tell me, what have you done? You see the frustration and the separation that's happening. And Jesus answered in verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So Jesus answers him saying, My kingdom's not like your kingdom. Your kingdom's marked with war and violence and power. My kingdom is different. If my kingdom were temporary kingdom, if it were bound right here and right now, then I would have my men fighting for my release and for my freedom, for I would have no hope but in this life alone, and I need to establish my kingship. But yet he's calm, and he doesn't have his men fighting for him, for his release. He doesn't have them knocking down the doors or pilot or fighting against the Jews. Rather, Calmly, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, his response leads Pilate in verse 37 to ask him again. But when he asked him this time, notice he says, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. He drops the king of the Jews. He's, he's genuinely kind of interested. The text, we, we can kind of guess here, it seems like there's a little bit of a window where Pilate's circling back. He's confused by this man in front of him. He's perplexed by the way he's carrying himself and his own presence there. And he asks again, so are you a king? He's trying to find out. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate said to him, what is truth? You see, in this moment, Jesus is, it can feel like for us as we're reading it, kind of cryptic, kind of like, what are they talking about? Why is Jesus doing this dance? And as we said earlier, it's because he doesn't want to give a reason for why he is executed. The onus would have to be on Rome and the Jewish leaders. And so he is speaking to his kingdom, and then he gives us this statement that we're supposed to be on the edge of our seat for, I came into the world for this purpose, to bear witness to the truth. And then you can pause there for a moment, and you can go, what does he mean, the truth? That's just kind of vague, that's kind of general, kind of ambiguous. What is he speaking to? And in John's gospel here, we see that in the very beginning, it talks about that the word was God and the word was with God and that the word became flesh, speaking of Jesus, and he dwelt among us and he was full of grace and truth. He's marked by truth. It says also that he is the exact representation. He has fully explained God. So to look at Jesus, who is truth, we look at God. And so John's made that clear. He says again in John 8 that there are people who are enslaved to sin, and Jesus teaches, but if you trust in me, the truth will set you free. And then the verse that probably many of you are thinking about is in John chapter 14, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody can come to the Father except through me. And so Jesus says it very frankly, very explicitly, I am truth, and there's no way to the Father apart from me. And so why here? Why now is John recording this again? Is Jesus just stating this so Pilate has accountability? Is John saying this to keep this theme going? I would argue that we can get a little bit more specific about what it means when Jesus says, I came to bear witness to the truth. Now, context is king, and you got to forgive this pun, but I think Jesus is actually speaking to his kingship. 
And what do I mean by that? If you look at this context, the questions Pilate's asking him, are you the king of the Jews? Are you a king? And then when he presents them before the religious leaders and he says he doesn't have any guilt, he doesn't find any guilt to him, he says, so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And then we see when he's handed over to the Roman soldiers, he's mocked and put a crown of thorns on his head and a purple robe to mock his royalty. And then they say, hail, king of the Jews. And then we see that Pilate has this opportunity and this challenge where uh, the Jews come to him and they say to him uh, in verse 12, from then on Pilate sought to release Jesus, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So the Jewish leaders are challenging Pilate saying, if you release Jesus, you are against Caesar because he is claiming to be a king. So the context is beating this drum of king and king. And then when Pilate has him presented before all the Jews at the end, he says, behold your king. And in chapter 19, verse 15, it says this, the Jews, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. I think when Jesus is standing before Pilate and he says, I was born for this purpose and I have come to bear witness to the truth. I think we're on good grounds from the context that he's bearing witness to the truth that he's the true king. He's a unique king. There's no king like him. His kingdom is entirely different. And the context is screaming, here's a picture of this king that he's bearing witness to. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this true king and we're going to see him as a glorious king, as a sacrificial king, and as a victorious king. And then we'll see man's response. First of all, he's a glorious king. He says when his kingdom is not of this world, his kingdom is entirely different. There's no kingdom like his. His power is grand and mighty. There is no one who can challenge him. It's of a different order. It's not like what Rome has seen. And his power is unmatched. Now, when we think about Christ being glorious, we can have a lot of thoughts that come into our mind. But if you will bear with me, we're going to go on a little bit of a journey. I don't want to lose you on the wagon here when we turn. So, like, stay on the wagon. But if you have your Bible... I want to give a picture of what this glorious king looks like. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6. You see, when Jesus is speaking that his kingdom is not of this world, it's a different scene. Now, if you can imagine, if you were someone to walk into the room right then and there with Pilate and Jesus having this conversation, you would walk in there and you would see... Pilate dressed in all of his Roman garb and power, and you would look at all the Roman soldiers, and you would see Jesus as a prisoner, and you would look and you would say, that's the king. Pilate's the king. But what I want to do with us being in Isaiah 6 is show you that although a present reality, a present situation might be happening, there's something grander and more spiritual that is occurring. And so if you're there in Isaiah chapter 6, it starts with this. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, King Uzziah was a good king. He had reigned for over 50 years. He had brought much 
bounty to Israel. He had given them uh, to Judah as he was the king over Judah. He had given them much resources and success. They had had uh, war success. They were financially stable. They had had plenty of food. It was a time of feast under King Uzziah. And of course, his success led to his pride. But in general, he was seen as a good king. And he had reigned for 50 years. So you can imagine the stability and the comfort and the, the knowledge of knowing Uzziah's got everything under control. And so in this context, when we read that this king, Uzziah has died, immediately it would start to conjure up for you fears, concern, uncertainty. What's going to happen? Who's the next king going to be? This feels like a turning point. Everything seems to be shifting, and fear would start to come in. And we have this picture here from Isaiah. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And so, despite the political turmoil, despite all of the things that could be going wrong, the uncertainty, Isaiah says, I see the Lord seated upon his throne. And the idea of the train of his robe filling up the temple, the length of the king's robe is a symbol usually of his power and his prestige and his royalty. And here we see that this robe, it completely fills up the temple. There's no room in the temple for how glorious he is. But verse 2, it says, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now these seraphim are holy creatures. They are sinless creatures. And here they are before this king covering themselves because they cannot be in his presence. Now, I have to confess that often when I think about the seraphim, I think of them as like a different entire category of us humans. But I want to remind you that they are just like us. They're finite. They're created creatures. Listen to what Ray Ortland says about the seraphim. He says, we must not think of God as highest in an ascending order of beings, starting from the single cell and going on up from the fish to the bird to the animal to man to angel to cherub to God. God is as high above an archangel as above a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is but finite, while the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. These seraphim, although they seem so glorious here, God in all of his infinite beauty and power is entirely distinct from them. There's no comparison. The caterpillar has more in common with these seraphim because of how glorious God is. And yet if you and I were to be in this room beholding these seraphim, we would fall down because of their glory and power. But look at what they do in verse 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. This is the only adjective of God that's said three times repeated like this. This idea of the, the language itself is kind of constrained of how do we even describe the person of God? Well, he's holy. There's... There's no one like him. He's infinite in his wisdom and judgment and power and truth. There's nothing we can compare him to. He's entirely different. Everything else is created. He has always been and always existed. He is holy. And so they're screaming and crying this out before God, covering themselves before his glory of this great king. And it's a reminder that although all things are crumbling around you, the Lord is seated upon his throne. He's the great king, and the earth is full of his glory. Like, John, thank you for that, but weren't we in the Gospel of John? 
We are. Hold on. Stay on the wagon here. Now, if you will, turn back with me to John chapter 12, and I want to show you how I think this ties into my kingdom is not of this world when we talk about this glorious king. John chapter 12, and while you're flipping there, Jesus is just performed miracles and signs before the people, and they've rejected his miracles and signs, and they don't, uh, they don't have a believing heart in him. And so in John chapter 12, verse 37, it says this, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then John goes on to quote Isaiah 53, And then he also, in verse 40, quotes Isaiah 6, and he says this, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. So John is saying Isaiah wrote about these things, talking about the hardness of heart of the people. They won't believe in this messenger. They won't believe in him. And then look at what he says in verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. And spoke of him. Who's the him? It's Jesus. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. Reminding us, Jesus was seen by Isaiah. His glory and his power was beheld by Isaiah, and Isaiah wrote of him. And it's very clear that Isaiah 6 being referenced right there, and then tying to this, that when we are to go back and look at Isaiah chapter 6, we are to see that this great king seated upon the throne, this glorious king, is none other than Christ himself and all of his majesty. And Isaiah saw this. And so the readers of John, you can't forget this monumental statement that Isaiah saw him and wrote of his glory. And so when we get to this scene now with Pilate and Jesus interacting, and when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, you are to bring into your mind's eye that he is the glorious king. There is no kingdom like his. That although the physical circumstance would look like Pilate has all of the power and control, Jesus is the true king. There is a deeper spiritual picture going on here. He's the one who has everything in control. He's the one who the seraphim cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. And so although this physical circumstance and reality may seem difficult and uh, may seem like there is no hope, Jesus reminds us, my kingdom is not of this world. Do you believe that? But he's not only this glorious king that's different from any other king. He's a sacrificial king. He has this heavenly scene where all of the angels are worshiping him, but he doesn't stay there. Not because we are great and lovable and awesome, but in all of his kindness, the good shepherd leaves the heavenly realm and he adds humanity to his divinity and he comes and he dwells among us. And he comes to purchase and die for his sheep. This great king, this glorious king, will be flogged by the Romans. He'll be mocked by them. He'll be spit upon by them. He'll be jeered at by the Jewish leaders. He will be a man acquainted with grief. His sorrows will be no end. He will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be punished for our sins. The iniquity that we all have done will be laid upon him. There is no king like him in his glory, and yet he comes to be a sacrificial king. He comes to bear the wrath of God. 
He will ultimately bear all of that on the cross. And God will forsake him and be displeased with him as he bears our sin so that we get all of his righteousness, those of us who trust in him. He's not a king who just stays high and lifted up, but rather he's a king who comes and dwells among us and dies for us who trust in him, for his sheep. What a good king we have. My kingdom is not of this world. But he's not only a glorious and sacrificial king, he's a victorious king. Other kings may promise everlasting kingdoms, but they're men and they die. This king is the king who's victorious. He kept his word and he faithfully walked it out and he fulfilled all of God's righteous requirements. He fulfilled all of his promises. He never strayed. He never was wayward. He never had anyone in doubt because this king was a perfect, victorious king. You see, throughout the Bible, we have this tension of two types of kingdoms. We have the kingdom of Satan, which is marked by a kingdom of darkness and lies. Even Jesus says so himself in John 8 that Satan is the father of lies. And he tells the religious leaders that you're acting like your father. You're doing the very desires of your father walking in darkness and in lies and deception, the deception of idolatry as Levi prayed. And so Jesus is saying, I am the victorious king who has come to bear witness to this truth that if you trust in me, there is life because he was obedient even to the point of death. And that's why we sing no grave could ever restrain him. He was the son of man who was lifted up and then he was raised from the dead to conquer death forever. He destroyed the works of the devil He set the captive free, and he put death to death with his work on the cross. And so when we behold this victorious king, we see a king whose kingdom is not like this world. What does that engender in you? Does it it bring worship? Does it help you when you think about this Christmas season and all the challenges that can come from Christmas? It could be a joyous time for many of us, but it could also be a hard time. It might be a Christmas without a loved one. It might be a Christmas with a difficult marriage or work issues or family issues or just the pressures of life feel overwhelming. Can you step back and see this glorious, sacrificial, and victorious king that although your present circumstances might feel overwhelming, would you behold Jesus, whose kingdom is not of this world. You see, one of the responses is Jesus says in verse 37, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He has a people who know him. There are people marked of the truth. They're not of Satan's line and they don't walk in lies, but they've been redeemed from the kingdom of darkness and they now walk with this kingdom of light and truth. And to to know his voice To be people of the truth, they have to have a personal relationship with him. They actually have to know the king, to know what his voice sounds like, to be in relationship with him. Jesus speaks about this, that my sheep know my voice and I know them. Is that a marker of you? Do you know this king? Do you know his voice? Do you so walk with him in the word and prayer and in fellowship with believers that you know when you're walking down a wrong path, when you're walking in sin and deception, do you know his voice? Because the sheep also listen to his voice, and sometimes his voice may command us to do things we don't enjoy that have a cost to them. But we're called to obedience. The sheep listen, and they follow. So the first response is, those who are of the truth hear his voice, and they follow him. They respond. But then we have another response, where Pilate said to him, what is truth? 
this massive question that he then presumably walks away on. Now, one of the pictures we see here in Pilate is, I think, one of a pragmatic approach to truth. I think Pilate genuinely believed Jesus wasn't guilty of what he's being accused of. And he says it three times. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. He's trying every way to not have Jesus punished. And and when he asks what is truth, he sees before him a man that he doesn't find guilty. But yet, pragmatically, he cannot have him released because then there would be a riot and Pilate would lose his jurisdiction, his power. And so he cannot have this riot and insurrection happen. He cannot have the Jewish leaders going against him. And so he abates the crowd. He pragmatically approaches truth with, I do think he is not guilty, but I'm going to go ahead and have him executed and wash my hands of it. I'm going to pragmatically do what's best. For many of us, that might be the marker of how we encounter the Christian faith. I want to engage with Christ. I believe this truth, but yet it would cost me too much to be obedient to him. It would cost me too much to follow him. My lifestyle, everything about the world I live in would have to change. Pragmatically, it just wouldn't work to be a Christian right now in this stage of life. I mean, who is actually a Christian in the 21st century America? That's kind of a lame trend to be a part of. Just It would alter my friend groups, my social media accounts. Pragmatically, it wouldn't work. But I think there's also another response, not just pragmatic, but there's one of being a skeptic. Or the, the theme of the day is what we would call relativism. And you've seen relativism play out in our current cultural moment where it's, well, that's your truth, but this is my truth. Where truth itself has no absolute truth. There's nothing bound. There's nothing objective. Everything about truth is tied to the individual. And so whatever you believe, when you make yourself king and do what's right in your sight, that's what's true and good. You can define truth however you want it to be. And it's a fun way to live out life. You get to kind of choose, and and if someone's going against you, you can just kind of disregard them and say, well, that's your truth, and this is my truth. And maybe you've had that conversation before. But we run into a problem when the two uh, subjective truths are colliding, right? So, for instance, if you have kids, if child one says, this is my truth, and child two says, no, this is my truth, and they're arguing with each other, well... The only way it's going to get fixed is one of them tackles each other or they fight or uh, someone has to step in, right? And that's where the parent steps in. The objective truth has to come in. And the parent can either be the majority opinion of the day, whatever the culture says, whatever most people think. Well, that's what truth is. That's what the parent will say there, and that's where it's guided. Or maybe the objective truth of the day will be government is the parent that steps in and says, well, that's your truth, and that's your truth. Well, I'm going to go with child one, not child two on this issue. The government is the ultimate holder of truth, or whatever the community may say. Is that sustainable? Because at that point, truth can be defined different ways. What is good and bad? Marriage can be defined different ways. What is life in the womb? Is pornography bad or good? Is this type of action good or bad? Truth is all subjective. And if the government or a community or majority opinion decide it, then once they go with that, who are you to question it? And at the end of the day, this relativism, this response of what is truth, it doesn't even really exist. It's all bound to the individual. It leads to chaos And it leads to a collision of a bunch of sinners who are trying to exalt themselves and make themselves out to be God. What is truth? Now, if you are a people who are of the truth, you would 
hear this word and you would respond to this great king. For some of you, I hope that you will be reminded of how great this king is. That this king stands before Pilate in all of his power as the one who is absolute truth. He is the one who guides us. He is the one who leads us in the paths of righteousness. And he is the one who will be with us as we walk through the shadow of the valley of death. And so my encouragement to you as you reflect upon this last year and getting ready for next year, that although life may be much different today than it was even a year ago, that you would behold your king and trust in him. And so take a moment and let's reflect on these things and then I'll pray for us.